You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, God willing, we're going to be continuing with our series of Shiram on the Inner World of Addiction. And the title of tonight's class is going to be Satisfaction in Desire. Now, obviously, satisfaction in desire is a paradoxical play on the typical concept of the two stages, satisfaction and desire. Because typically what we imagine is that an individual or a subject experiences desire for something. And only when that desire is filled, only when that need is satisfied, does one reach a state of satisfaction. But what this entire class is going to be attempting to describe is the paradoxical phenomenological state that the potential addict or the addict in the state of recovery experiences, which is the state of satisfaction within the experience of desire itself. So that satisfaction is not a secondary stage that comes to fill and negate the preceding desire, but rather the desire itself is elevated to a space within the individual's consciousness and the individual's emotional space, wherein that desire itself offers a certain fleeting sense of satisfaction, which drives the person forward and further. But like in the previous shirim, especially the last two shirim, when discussing the conditions and the phenomenology of what it means to be a potential addict or an addict who experiences the abject connection to any substance that provides well-being in spite of the negative consequences, and which we've expressed numerous times as not simply the addict in the pathological sense, but really any human being who identifies as being rooted in the souls of chaos, the souls of Cain, the souls of the school of Beit Shammai, the more severe individuals who when they look out onto the world, what they find is unhappiness very often. Not an unhappiness that comes from a sadness or a depression necessarily, but a marirus, a bitterness, which looks at the world and says there must be something else here. And it's that questioning itself, that murmuring of the heart, that dissatisfaction at the heart of experience, which on a certain level, especially according to the tzaddikim of Ishbitz and Rav Tzadok, draws down enlightenment. Because the way the Meshilach describes the initial entrance of Avraham Avinu, of Abraham, into ethical monotheism, is not one of rational intellectualization or abstraction that eventually led him to the belief in a monotheistic religion, but rather it was the mere questioning of the self. It was the bitterness of the spirit, the merirus hanefesh, the murmuring of the self, which said there must be something else here. And by virtue and by dint of that questioning itself, Abraham and Avraham came to understand that there must be a higher power. It wasn't that he was given the answer of a higher power, but it was by dint of the questioning itself that gave birth to the higher power. Now these spirits, these souls, those of us who find ourselves attached to the spirits of questioning, to the spirit of chaos, which has tasted a light beyond that which this world has to offer, 
will find themselves in the phenomenon that we're going to be discussing tonight of desire and satisfaction. But again, when we discuss the pathological or negative stages of desire and dissatisfaction and the unhappy consciousness which animates the addict or the potential addict, within the desire itself, within this dissatisfaction itself, we're also going to be touching upon the cure itself. Like we've said numerous times already, that within the letters, within the spiritual potency of nega, the nun, the gimel, and the ayin, which represents any spiritual negative character trait or any disease of the soul or any disease of the spirit, we're already touching the same spiritual building blocks that make up the word oneg, the ayin, the nun, and the gimel, which make up the concept of ta'anug, of supernal delight, which sits at the crown of our experience, both psychologically and spiritually. Or like we said in the name of the Ramban, which bears repeating in almost every class, that there's a double miracle that God performs in the sense that he sweetens the bitter with bitter itself. That unlike human doctors, unlike the human mind, which is only capable of negating severity through kindness and love and expression, the divine mind, godliness, God of our understanding is capable of taking the bitterness itself and forcing that bitterness to flip itself, to be nahapich itself, to transform itself into light itself. Or like Rabbi Nachman says explicitly, or really Rabbi Nassim says in the name of Rabbi Nachman, that this world is created with the letter He. And if we look back to the Shir on Resh Milin, by the letter He, we can have a deeper understanding of this, that the letter He represents this world because a person can simply fall out from the bottom. And the reason that there's a small opening on the left side of the hay at top is so that a person who has fallen away from grace has the capacity of elevating themselves back up. And after describing this beautiful process of descent and then an eventual ascent from a different space, Rabbi Nassim adds, parenthetically speaking, he says that he asked his Rebbe, he asked Rabbi Nachman, he said, is it possible to elevate from the same space that you fell out of? Because if we look at the letter hey, there's an opening on the bottom where a person can fall out, representing the fallenness and the brokenness of creation. And there's also going to be this slight opening at the top, which shows how difficult it is to repent and come back to a place of grace. And Rabbi Nassim says, what about those individuals who have fallen and can only ascend back up the way that they came? Meaning to say, is there a way to elevate ourselves through the experience of fallenness itself? Is there a way to find sweetness in the bitterness of our experience as well? Or do we need to go an entirely circuitous route to find some alternative way of sweetening our lives? And Rabbi Nassim says that what he heard from Rabbi Nachman was, yes, it's difficult, but yes, there is a way. There is a secret that enables a person to elevate daika specifically from the place that they have fallen, which summarizes this concept that very often within the curse itself, within the broken, fallen experience of addiction or the potential towards addiction, also abides the potential towards recovery, which allows the individual, like we've said in the Shirim on the Neshamas of Tohu, the souls of chaos, to experience life in a doubled form, with a more potentiated experience so that the repentant individual, the person who ascends from darkness back up to grace and light, can experience a joy and a presence in life that individuals who have never fallen in the first place don't necessarily have access to. Now, one of the conditions that animates the life of the addict or the potential addict is simply stated as dissatisfaction. There's an abiding sense that what I have is not enough, that what I seek is not what I have, and that the things in my life that are there to offer me comfort or to offer me support in my daily life, whether it's interpersonal between me and myself or between me and my higher power, is simply not enough. 
that the animating configuration of the experience of the addict, like we said last week, is one of lack. Now, as we said in last week's class, that lack can be transformed into that which animates the individual. But when taken at first glance, that lack speaks of a world that is deficient. It speaks of scarcity. It speaks of a sense that I must rush and I must grab what I can take from this world because if I don't move fast enough, if I don't rush as quick as I possibly can, there will not be enough. This sense of scarcity, this sense of if I don't move now to acquire the desires of my heart, if I don't run as quick as I can and satisfy myself through the gluttonous urges of devouring more and more content, more and more substance in whatever manifestation it takes, then there won't be enough and I will suffer because of the scarcity of it all. So the addict or the potential addict experiences life under the threat of there not being enough. It's the opposite of enoughness. It's a lack. It's a deficiency that the world does not have enough to offer me. And therefore, I must take actions into my own hand to ensure that I have what my heart desires. And I fress and I eat and I take and I take and I take to try and fill this empty void within myself in the hopes of finally reaching a point of satisfaction. Now, this dissatisfaction that animates the heart of the addictive mindset or the potential towards addiction, which says that everything in this world is there to comfort me, everything in this world is there to be devoured so that I can finally feel satiety, I could finally feel a sense of satisfaction or sevia in Hebrew is what tells the addict that everybody else and anything that anybody else is partaking in is against me. There's a jealousy that animates the life of the addict or the potential addict because anything that somebody else is experiencing or enjoying is taking away from the possibility of my enjoyment, which is why, as we saw in previous classes, that the addict is very rooted to the experience of Cain, to this jealous brother who sees that his offering to God is not accepted. And instead of attempting to find grace in that non-acceptance and in that failure, he attempts to devour more and more. He attempts to devour his brother through the first act of homicide. He attempts to hide from God. He attempts to take more and more from this world. Cain is from the same etymological root as Kenyan, which means acquirement. That that absent hole in his heart drove him to acquire more and more, to build and to create cities in the hopes of quieting down that beating heart that says, feed me, feed me, feed me. And as they say in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, that addiction can be summed up in one, in one word, and that's more. That the addict or the potential addict simply wants more because the animating experience is one of dissatisfaction. And that's why, like we touched upon last week, one of the primary phenomenological experiences that distinguishes the potential addict and the addict from anybody who doesn't experience these types of conditions is that of craving. That craving is one of the symptoms, according to the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, as well as the philosophy of addiction. Craving is not simply desire. Craving is not simply need. But it's a hybridity of desire and need, wherein I feel that I want this thing so badly, but I also need it so deeply, so that when I don't have it, it's a doubled form of pain. That the addict on a certain level experiences a visceral lack a feeling of actual physical need. And I'm not speaking about the dependency to chemicals because that's a physiological need. 
even once a person has detoxed and is no longer addicted to anything specific, the viscerality of craving is so strong that it creates a sense of desire that creates pain. It's a psychological form of desire that hurts my body. It's an interconnection between the mind and the body that we rarely experience, except it's through negativity. And craving, when I started working in the field of addiction, my assumption was as follows. My assumption that addicts and alcoholics enjoy drugs and alcohol, and therefore they crave for drugs and alcohol. That the first step is the, that they enjoy the high, they enjoy the intoxicating experience, and because they enjoy the intoxicating experience, there's a craving for that experience. And once they get high, or once they get intoxicated, or once they have their object of desire, or the thing that provides substance in their life, so then the craving dissipates because it's satisfied. But after working in the field for a little bit, what I've come to understand is that it's really inverted. It's really the opposite. It's not that addicts and alcoholics enjoy getting high and therefore they crave getting high, but rather addicts and alcoholics are the potential addicts and the potential alcoholics, the souls of chaos. The given condition of the human experience is one of craving, a desire for something more than that which is present in their equation of life at the present moment a desire for something elsewhere, a desire for something out there, a promised happiness, a promised hope, a promised satisfaction that rests just out of the horizon of my vision, which I'm always waiting for, which I'm always hungry for, which I'm always praying for and desiring. And because this condition of craving and desire that remains unsatisfied, not because there's no object to satisfy it, but because its nature is that it cannot be satisfied as we're going to see, so the addict tries to find relief from this condition of craving. And when we find the substance of our choice, whether it be a drug of choice or whether it be a behavior of choice or an idea of choice, that craving is quieted down, that craving is settled, that craving is satisfied. So it's not that addicts and alcoholics like drugs or alcohol and therefore they crave for it, but rather the addict or the alcoholic or the potential addict is perpetually in a state of craving. And the only time that they escape that moment of craving is when they're intoxicated because they're not aligned with themselves. Like we saw last week that the shikar, the drunken individual, the intoxicated individual, sees the world as perfect. So intoxication offers a momentary release from the perpetuality of craving. It's not that craving is a means to an end, but craving is the experience of the addict itself, and the drug or the drink or the behavior is simply a way of momentarily satisfying that craving, and once the drug wears off, that craving comes back again. So that craving itself is the animating function of what it means to be an addict or an alcoholic or a potential addict or a potential alcoholic. And that the desire for the drug or the drink of choice has so little to do with addiction that it's, it's funny. Because for so long, the assumption about addiction or the assumption about being stuck in any type of behavior was that the individual was stuck in the pleasure or the experience of intoxication that this individual is willing to let go of all of the things in their life for the sake of pursuing this destructive pleasure simply because they like it so much. But it's simply not true. Addiction and the condition of the possibility of addiction has much less to do with the drug of choice or the desired object of choice than we typically assume. It's the experience of craving that animates addiction, a desire for more, a dissatisfaction when a person looks at the world. 
And as we saw in numerous places, this dissatisfaction can be rooted in multiple experiences. It could be rooted in a primordial trauma. It can be rooted in the simple awareness that the severe spirit has of the lack that abides within the core of the self. It could be that we've tasted a light so great and we're, we're slowly but surely coming to terms with the fact that this world cannot offer us that light. But for whatever reason that craving animates our experience, the craving is the means itself. The craving is the, phenom the phenomenon of addiction and the way the addict lives their life. When you ask a number of addicts, when you ask anybody who suffers the experience of addiction and has been sober long enough to know that it's not about the artificial intoxicating spirit itself, what they'll come to tell you is that the craving itself is very often what offers the pleasure that they're seeking. Now, sociologically speaking, this is particularly clear with individuals who have been addicted to heroin, and the literature on heroin addiction speaks of this. William Burroughs speaks about this very strongly in his book, Junkie, that it's the craving which provides the high. And in truth, the act of becoming intoxicated, the act of negating the craving, is almost like an anticlimactic end to the experience of what it means to be an addict who's craving their quote-unquote junk. That it's the craving, it's the, the chase, it's the desire which gives the addict life. To the point that for the addict, if you were to offer them a substance that did not provide any downs, it was a high that would keep them high and intoxicated for the remainder of their life, it would be a deeply dissatisfying experience. Because as we're going to see, the nature of addiction and the nature of the redemption from addiction is contingent upon the interplay and the dialectical dance and the oppositional paradox between satisfaction and desire. So that without desire, without any need, without craving, there can be no experience. It's the craving itself that animates, A, the broken condition of what it means to be an abject addict or a potential addict, but it's also the condition that animates us, as we're going to see, to be recovering individuals, to be individuals on a path towards something greater than ourselves. Now, Rabbi Nachman describes this phenomenon very well. And with an introduction, again, from the, psychoanal the psychoanalytic philosophical stance of, let's say, Jacques Lacan, as Rav Chagar brings him down, and as Rav Froman brings him down, and really, as you can read it into the writings of different Hasidic masters and Lithuanian masters of Kabbalah, that for Lacan, like we spoke about last week, subjectivity is born out of lack. Lack is not some result of losing something, but it is the beginning of subjectivity that we lack, therefore we are. That the subject itself is a craving subject. It wants something that is not present. Now, for Lacan, what he describes as this object that is not present is an object petit a. And this object petit a, basically for Lacan, is an object that doesn't exist. That the craving that we have, the deep desire that the addict or the potential addict experiences, is not the desire for a particular object. It's not the desire for some drug of choice or some substance of choice or some behavior of choice, but rather it is a desire that desires desire itself, that the human being must desire something. The human being must crave something. And because craving is dependent on a particular object, 
So the mind attaches itself to some object and it says, if only I get A, B, or C, my craving will be, des- my, will, my craving will be satisfied. My desire will be settled. But when a person comes to that fateful moment where they realize that they have their object itself, there comes the deepest pain in, in experience, which is that I have what I've wanted and I'm still unsatisfied. I have what I've been searching for and it doesn't settle me. It doesn't fill that hole. It doesn't fill the lack. It doesn't satisfy the desire. And a person is forced to confront the sense that the lack and the craving that we experience is not for some particular object, but it is a lack that creates who we are. It is a craving that animates the condition of what it means to be a human being. And Rabbi Nachman explains this in a profound and almost comical way that only Rabbi Nachman can describe it in. And we're going to be looking at Sichos Haran Os Vav here. And he says as follows. What is the evil inclination compared to? What is the Yetzir Hara? What is this drive? What is this craving? What is this source of temptation and desire compared to? It's compared to somebody, an individual who is running amongst human beings, veering in and out of human beings, mocking what it means to be a human being, running in between our daily frustrations, the daily efforts that we put forth to satisfy our infinite desires. And his hand is shut tightly and nobody knows what's inside of his fist. And he goes to each individual, he goes to each particular soul and says, what am I holding in my hand? What am I holding in the, in the core of what I'm offering you? And to each individual, to each person, it appears as if this temptation, this craving, this desire is offering the one thing that that individual needs, the one thing that that individual wants in their heart of hearts. And so everybody chases after their desires their whole life. Everybody chases after this evil inclination, this craving of the spirit. Because each individual has been convinced that the Yetzirah, temptation, craving, desire, the possibility of addiction has exactly what I need. It has my missing piece. It's not offering me pleasure, it's offering me fullness. So I'm going to chase after it. And the biggest joke of it all, the biggest farce of it all, is that when we finally get what we need, when we finally corner that Yetzirah, when we finally corner that craving, it opens its hand and poof. There's nothing there. Kemokin mamish, says Rabbi Nachman. Exactly this way, the Sahara pretends to each and every person, and it's running in between all individuals, running throughout our mind, throughout the days, pretending as if it has exactly what our hearts desire, exactly the object of our craving. That imagined fantastical object that we think will satisfy all of our craving and all of our desire. And at the end, it opens its hand and it shows us that there's absolutely nothing there. That the craving itself is what drives us. It's not the desire for a particular object. Because the high itself, the grasp, the seizure of what it is that we've been seeking, is almost always a dissatisfying experience. Because when we get what we think that we've needed for so long, when we reach what we've promised ourselves that if only I get this, I will be happy, and then we're forced to come to terms with the vulnerability and the broken sense that even when I have what I've been seeking my whole life, I'm still unhappy, that is what the Sahara does. It says, guess what? There's nothing in my hand because your desire and your craving is simply for more. It's simply for something other than what you are at the moment. 
Now, like we said, within this experience of craving and desire and dissatisfaction, we're also going to be able to touch upon the roots of what it means to be a recovering individual. And for us, as it should be clear by now, recovering individual doesn't simply mean an individual who is no longer attached to a substance of choice, because these classes are not simply about individuals who are addicted to a particular substance, but it's appropriate for each and every individual to question in themselves, what is that thing that I'm convinced that if I have, I will be happy? What is the desire, what is the craving that animates my experiences, that drives my jealousy, that disables me from being present in my life, in my experiences, in the moment that I am existing in as it is at the present moment? What is it that pushes me away? What is it that disorients me? What is it that alienates me from myself? And when we can penetrate deeply into this question, we can also find within ourselves the possibility, the possibility or the potential towards satisfaction. Because it is specifically within the desire, it is specifically within the craving towards more that the individual of Tohu, that the shattered soul, that the broken spirit, that the sensitive soul can find satisfaction. Not in the satisfaction of desire, but in desire itself. Because at the heart of desire, there abides a deep urge to connect to something bigger than what we are at the present moment. To demand more from the conditions of life than what it is offering us at the present moment. To look out onto the world and to say that this is simply not enough. This is, simply not what, this is simply not what it is. There must be more beneath the surface, behind the curtain. In Alcoholics Anonymous, simply as a model of the spirituality of recovery, there's 12 steps as well as 12 traditions. In the third tradition, the very famous idea, it says the only necessary requirement for membership to our fellowship is the desire to stop drinking. Now, drinking we're going to use as a proper noun because Alcoholics Anonymous was started for alcoholics, but drinking can be replaced with any word, with thinking, with learning, with using, with eating, with drinking, with loving, with hoping, with crying, with being broken, with praying, with sighing, any attitude, any attitude that we become connected to, to the point that it creates a a dangerous consequential space in our lives because it forces us to escape the reality of life. All it takes is a desire to stop drinking because if the entirety of addiction is about desire gone awry, is about the utter potential of a desire being pushed towards a particular object to the point that it becomes craving for a substance, then redeeming that desire Taking that undying drive for something more than what is present at the present moment and elevating it back up to a lofty place within our souls, to a place of rutzone, to a place of desire for something more, that's the only requirement for recovery. The only requirement for recovery is reaching down into the core of ourselves, grabbing that desiring spirit and moving it out of the darkness towards the light. Because at the core of who we are, as individuals with spirits is an undying desire, a rut zone for something more, a rut zone that cannot be satisfied. But the question here that we need to reanimate for ourselves is what is the source of the impossibility of satisfying my desire? Because in addiction and in the broken state of things, 
It's simply because we haven't gotten what we've wanted yet. And so we drive ourselves and we push ourselves and we crave more and more for things in our lives that we think that we need. But in recovery and in redemption, the realization is that this desire remains unsatisfied, not because I don't have what I need, but because the nature of my soul, the ontological status of what it means to be a human being in an imperfect world, is to desire for something more than what I can handle. It's a desire for something bigger than what this world has to offer. That the animating function of my nefesh, of my soul, of my spirit, of my mind, of my personality, of my consciousness, of my archetypal pattern, is that I want something more than this world has to offer. I hope for a world that is not present right now, for a power that is always and perpetually greater than myself. Now here is where negative theology and apophasis that animates Kabbalah, as we saw in the Shirim of the Leshem and Rav Kook, kisses the world of recovery. Because Alcoholics Anonymous, for example, or 12-step programs are deeply negative theological, in line with Maimonides, in the sense that we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. The only condition necessary for developing a relationship with God, as we understand it, is to realize that our higher power is always higher than us. It is always something that cannot be fully grasped that the soul desires connection with a higher power that cannot be fully grasped within the spirit because the spirit is limited and God is infinite. And infinitude and finite cannot relate with one another except by way of desire and craving for that which is outside of my realm of the grasp. What I know and what I intuitively know and what I rationally know, that falls into the category of moichin, of consciousness, of things that I grasp and things that are measurable and graspable. But my faith that animates my craving and my desire for something bigger than what I am is always and perpetually seeking that which I cannot touch. Because if the infinite is infinite, it means that I cannot fully grasp it. And the moment that I grasp it, I need to come to terms with the fact that what I've grasped is only a small piece of what I truly want. Because the deepest spiritual sense that an individual can have is a desire for more, is the realization that at the end of the day, all there is is faith. Bill W., in his wisdom and in his intuitiveness, when he writes in the second step that we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity, allowed for the negative theological impulse and the postmodern impulse in recovery. Because had he said we come to know a power greater than ourselves, had we come to have a yidea, that would imply that our kalim can grasp that which we're seeking. That our higher power, that the infinite, that or in sof can be settled within the mind of the individual. But when he says the word belief, what it implies is amuna, faith. Faith is contingent on concealment. Faith is contingent on that sikhlus ma'at, that small amount of stupidity that remains deeply embedded within the mind of each and every individual, the mile dishtusa, the foolishness, which tells us that at the end of the day, all we can do is have faith. We can never truly grasp absolutely that which what it is we're trying to grasp. Because for the infinite to be infinite, it must be higher than us. And there will always be a desire and a craving of the soul for that which is slightly outside of our reach for that transcendence that seems to be right behind the corner. 
for that horizon that seems to constantly recede further and further away the more and more we try and grasp it. Because a Klal Gadol in Kabbalah, Klal Gadol in Jewish mysticism, as well as recovery, is that an individual who thinks they've reached the Tachlis, who thinks they've reached the end point and the apex of everything, it's a clear sign that they're stuck in the process. Because the only Tachlis, the only purpose, the only apex is to come to the realization that we can never truly grasp the apex. And that our craving and our desire can never truly be satisfied. So that recovery is not simply being satisfied and no longer having craving and no longer having desire for something more than that which is present in our life, but rather recovery and redemption is coming to terms with that desire and realizing that this is what makes me a Ben Adam. This is what makes me a human being, the fact that I desire for something more. This lack within myself, within the world, which forms the world, this primordial simsum where HaKadosh Baruch Hu, where God introduces the concept of lack into the world, is what gives birth to this philosophical and psychological phenomenon of craving that cannot be satisfied, of a faith that continues burgeoning and building. Because every time I think I've grasped something absolutely, I'm then forced immediately to come to the realization that I still haven't even begun the process. That this craving, this desire for something more, is that which makes me an individual, is that which makes me a person who yearns for something. And a number of sources that we're going to look at tonight touch upon this. In the Teferis Chanochi, in the parish of the Zohar from Rav Gershom Henech, liner of Radzin, who we've spoken about in the past, the base Medrash of Radzin and Ishbitz are, are, are the underlying themes of this series of Shirim on addiction, on this series of Shirim on what it means to be a human being. And Rav Gershon Hanach writes on page 157, for the sake of anybody who's interested in finding the source, he says as follows, Why is it that the spirit of the individual will never cease from its craving? Even when it's satisfied, even when we give our souls that which what we think we need, why is it that it perpetually seeks something more? And Rav Gershon Hanuk says the reason for this abiding dissatisfaction within the spirit is because the spirit is rooted in such a lofty place to the extent that at its root there is nothing that can satisfy it other than its source, which is godliness, which is divinity. And he continues and he says further on, on page 170, something incredible. He says, because in truth, in each and every person, in each and every soul, that part of themselves which desires something more, which seeks to receive something, is in truth the loftiest space within the spirit. Typically, what we imagine, typically what we assume is that satisfaction and satiety and having what we need and being able to grasp things represents a loftier space of experience. But what our tzaddikim and righteous teachers have taught us is that it is specifically in the desire for more. It is specifically in the feeling of lack and chisaron that drives teshuka and yigiya and ratzon and desire where we find the deepest elevation of ourselves. And he brings this in the name of Chazal. He says, like the Pasuk says, the gam hanefesh lo the Pasuk in Kohelas in Ecclesiastes says that the spirit shall never be satisfied. 
Now that is not a contingent sentence in the sense that the spirit will never have what it wants, so therefore it will never be satisfied. But rather it's an ontological statement that even when the spirit has that which it wants, even when the craving seems to be satisfied, even when the person finds their substance of choice, it will still not be satisfied because there is a dissatisfaction that abides at the heart of satisfaction. Because satisfaction itself, if we think we're satisfied, that's a clear sign that we're dissatisfied. It's a clear sign that we're craving something physical. Because spiritual desire, refined desire, elevating rutzon, the desire to stop drinking, the desire to elevate ourselves out of the broken patterns of our life, is a desire that shall never be satisfied. Because it's a desire for something infinite, which means that every moment that I experience it, I need to keep yearning, I need to keep hoping, I need to keep pushing myself forward with the realization that this world is not necessarily a world of satisfaction, but rather this world is a world of desire and seeking and questing and never resting on my laurels and never reaching a point where I can say, Ani hagever, I am the individual who has completed everything. Because deep down we are imperfect and that is our perfection. That what it means to be a recovering individual is to come to terms with the realization that we're not God, that I am imperfect. And by virtue of my imperfection, the only way that I can connect to perfection is by way of yearning for it. And based on this pasuk, v'adam hanefesh lo tamala, and the soul shall not be satisfied, the medrash in Vayikra Rabbah, in Leviticus Rabbah, in Perak Dalid, says as follows. There's an analogy. There's an analogy for the dissatisfaction of the soul. The analogy is as follows. A princess marries an individual from the impoverished part of town, a destitute individual. The princess who comes from a place of satiety, of satisfaction, of having that which it desires, of not seeking anything, of lo chaser davar, of nothing lacking. It comes from a space of the infinite. The soul descends into an individual by way of the emanation from the infinite into the finite. And the soul contains within itself the residual light, that irreducible trace of what it means to be infinite. So that our craving and our hunger for more cannot be satisfied with finite objects or finite substances. And this princess, this soul that comes from a space of infinity, that comes from the palace, marries this destitute individual. And this destitute individual, this worldliness, the physicality of this world, the substances of this world, from A to Z, they try and satisfy this princess. They try and say, here, take this, be satisfied, like the Eight Sahara running around with its clenched fist, offering these false fantasies of imagined pleasures that will satisfy that lack that animates the core of who I am. And this, the princess is dissatisfied. Dissatisfied, not because the destitute individual is not offering anything, but because she has tasted Hungarian wine, because the princess has tasted that which comes from a place of infinity, because the princess has tasted real satisfaction, real infinity, and therefore the princess will never be satisfied. The soul cannot be satisfied in this world. There is no substance strong enough to satisfy the desire and the craving that abides within the spirit of the human being that the spirit craves not because it doesn't have what it wants, but because that's what the spirit does. And here is where we touch upon the profound realization in recovery and in redemption, that the fact that our craving cannot be satisfied, the fact that our desire cannot be assuaged, 
the fact that there is no object strong enough, big enough, powerful enough, potent enough, toxic enough to settle our souls and say you've reached the point where you can no longer go further is not necessarily a deficiency of the spirit, but it points to the elevation of the spirit. And Rami Nachman describes this profoundly in the 24th teaching of Lakuti Maharan, where he says, based on older mystical teachings, that there are certain places within the world of God that he has created, within the emanatory process in which the infinity manifests infinitude, that can only be described as mati velomati, touching and not touching, naga veeno naga, attaching and not attaching, reaching and not reaching. And this point of touching but not touching, if you understand it according to the previous mystical teachers, what it seems to be is a sequentiality where there are points where I can touch that which I'm trying to reach, where I can satisfy my deepest desires, and then the next moment I come to a place of being dissatisfied, of realizing that I can't have what I want, and that there are moments of having and moments of not having. There are moments of satisfaction and there are moments of desire. And that each moment of desire gives way to the next level of satisfaction, and each level of satisfaction gives way to the next level of desire. But for Rabbi Nachman and Rabbi Nassan, what they describe in Teaching 24 is something profound. Because what they bring to the focus is that satisfaction and desire, craving and having, yearning and being, being and becoming, pain and joy are not sequential in the sense that one gives way to another, but rather they are simultaneous in a paradoxical, almost impossible way that can only be understood within the recesses of the soul. Each and every person, according to the level of their own subjective heart and grasp of a higher power, like we introduced with the Zohar in the first year, that kol chad lefum mad belibe, each person according to the conjecture of their own heart, in our desire, in our not having, in our craving, in our dissatisfaction, in our lack, we can find a way to experience satisfaction. We can find a way to experience satiety. We can find a way to experience presence. It's specifically when we come to terms with the fact that the highest point of our experience as human beings is one of craving and desire. It's specifically there that we can enter into a space where we become satisfied with desire. Where desire itself is no longer a mode that seeks to find satisfaction to itself, that seeks to negate itself with some object that promises to fill that void, but rather desire perpetuates itself. Desire is not a lack that seeks to be satisfied and destroyed, but rather is a lack that seeks to animate itself because it is this sense of needing something more in our lives that propels us to a loftier place. It's what tells us that the only thing that can offer me hope in reality is a power greater than myself. That anything that is measurable, anything that is weighable, anything that I can say, this is this, and I can hold the ipsity of the thing, and I can say that it is nothing other than what it is in my hands right now, the objectivity of it all, the substantiality of it all, that's limited. That draws me out of my quest for the infinite, out of my quest for that space of holy chaos that I've descended from. And it says here, be satisfied with the trimmings of the destitute individual. 
But the princess understands that it can't be satisfied with this. And it's specifically in that dissatisfaction, in that ra'avon, in that hunger, that a person has the potential of touching a taste of satisfaction. Because that abiding desire for something more is what pushes me to seek more and more. It's what pushes me to continue to try and cultivate myself and come to terms with the fact that the loftiest places of experience in this world are the ones that are rooted in faith and not knowledge, are the ones that are rooted in the negative theological impulse that says that there is so much more that I cannot understand than that what I understand. And there is so much more that is not in my control than what I can control. And what is born out of this is a humility, a humility that says, I can't have everything that I want, and I need to become satisfied with my desire. I need to cultivate a desire that does not seek satisfaction, but rather allows itself to persist in the act of desiring, in that very often uncomfortable sense that there's something more that's missing from the scene here, but I'm not going to spend the rest of my life trying to satisfy that craving. I'm going to turn that craving into a prayer. I'm going to turn that craving into a seeking for something more to come into my life in some way or another. And it's specifically this desire, it's specifically this yearning, this hope for something more that drives recovery, that tells us that my source of happiness, my source of satisfaction, my source of satiety, my source of being okay is not dependent on any object in this world, but it's dependent on something beyond this world. It's dependent on a yearning that comes from a place beyond the horizon of this world, something that is transcendent, just out of view. And the life of the recovering individual is animated by this. Chazal say this, that for righteous individuals, there is no comfort, that it's yelech mechayel el that there's never a time where a person can say, I have reached the culmination of my quest because I have satisfied the deepest desires of my soul. Because the deepest truth of the soul is that its desire can never truly be satisfied. And it's specifically here where we come into the paradoxical space where we find joy in dissatisfaction the same way that we find joy in satisfaction. And the dissatisfaction itself, the desire and the yearning for that which is not present, is in fact a deeper level of enjoyment and a deeper level of satisfaction than being satisfied with something. That the craving for the more is what gives us strength, is the koyach of our bechira. Like we said in the name of the letter of Carl Jung to Bill W, that what the addict truly wants is wholeness, and wholeness is beyond this world. And he quotes the Pasuk of like a deer pineth after water. The word ta'arog, my soul desires something that is not here. It yearns and it connects through desire. I have it by not having it. I own what I have by being destitute. It's specifically in my hunger that I become satisfied, like the Pasuk said, to give them sustenance in their hunger. And the typical understanding of this Pasuk is that in the time of famine, a person will be satisfied through the grace of God. But the way that Sadiqim and the way that Hasidus and Kabbalah understand this Pasuk is that there is a deep level of satisfaction and Ta'anug that comes specifically from the hunger itself. And it's identified as the day of Yom Kippur when a person prevents themselves and removes themselves ascetically from any of the pleasures of the soul, from any of the pleasures of the body. And we find satisfaction specifically in dissatisfaction because we realize the deepest level of pleasure that we can have is the pleasure of non-pleasure, is the realization that this world is not a space of pleasure. 
And it's sometimes in that banal space of living life on life's terms where a person can find transcendence in the everyday. That it's not a promise of paradise, it's not a promise of salvation, but rather the promise of recovery is a promise of being okay with what you have and what you don't have. By abiding in your lack, by living in your desire, by not being dissatisfied, but being satisfied in that space of desire. One of the most profound statements of this with the redemptive impulse is written by the main disciple of Rav Avram Yitzhak HaKohen Kuk, Rav Yaakov Moshe Chalap, who was a mystic from a very young age, whose a hundred books are sitting behind me on the shelf over here. And Rav Chalap writes famously in the first teaching in the sixth volume of his writings, he says as follows, he says, the measure of yearning for salvation and redemption is of a greater spiritual level and a greater revelatory level than the expression and revelation of redemption itself. That there is a certain potency within desire that cannot be found in satisfaction. And the Sfas Emes, the second Rebbe of the Ger dynasty, says this in countless places. That Ratzon, that desire itself, contains a more potent expression of what it means to be a human being connecting to God than connecting to God itself. Because the desire is infinite. The desire is a potential for anything. And when a person lives with the sense that that desire is not necessarily going to be satisfied, then a person allows themselves to find comfort in their dissatisfaction. And the craving for some particular object and the yearning to devour something, which as we know in addiction can never be satisfied. One of the best books written in the last 10 years on addiction is written by Gabor Mate and is called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he describes in numerous places that this imagery of the hungry ghost is this mythological image of a spirit that has a massive belly, a massive appetite, but a tiny throat and a tiny mouth, which comes to bring to focus this paradoxical relationship between desire and the possibility of satisfaction towards desire. So that the hungry ghost is the paradigmatic archetype of what it means to be an addict because the desire is so deep, but the possibility of satisfaction is impossible. And it's specifically in this dissatisfaction that the recovering individual can come to terms with themselves and say, yes, I've tasted a light of chaos. I come from a lofty place. I come from a place that this world doesn't offer me. And therefore, I have to learn how to cultivate this desire and direct it towards something larger than me. And in this way, the desire itself becomes part and parcel of the highest place of human experience. Rav Cook and the Vilnagon and a number of thinkers expressed that there was a big mistake that took place at the creation of the world. Prior to the primordial sin, prior to the lapse that Adam Harishon, the first individual, engaged in in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, and that was the sin of the ground. That according to rabbinic thought, the ground was meant to create trees with a phenomenon wherein the bark of the tree and the tree itself and the fruits of the tree had the same taste. Benji Epstein, Dr. Benji Epstein's book, Living in the Presence, expresses this idea more profoundly than many of the tzaddikim and many of the thinkers that came before him. That the way the world was meant to be created was that desire and satisfaction should have the same taste. That the bark of the tree, which is representative of the means towards the end, and the fruit of the tree, which means the end, should have been experienced with the same level of satisfaction. So to say that desire itself should be as satisfying as satisfaction is satisfying. But the ground messed up and the ground sinned, so to speak. 
And what we have nowadays as a result of the sin of the ground is this transgression of the earth, is that we have trees where the bark does not taste like anything. It's banal and it's void and it's empty and it's gray and it's painful and it's dreary and it creates a sense of anxiety and brokenness and depression and forces a person to try and find comfort in all sorts of mysterious ways that typically create toxicity and brokenness in a person's life. And the fruits of our efforts represent the goals. But there is a way, according to Rav Kook and according to our tzaddikim, and Benji Epstein describes this very clearly in his book, Living in the Presence, that we can come to a place in our lives where we take joy in dissatisfaction as well, where we take joy in craving as well, where we can create the taste of the bark itself, where we can preempt redemption, preempt recovery, and say that within my desire itself, I am going to find my satisfaction. Now, the last two sources that I want to bring here are going to be from Rafutner and one from Emmanuel Levinas. Rafutner says as follows in a profound way, and the reason I like this source so much is because he finds this experience, he describes this paradoxical phenomenon of craving and satisfaction being part and parcel of the same experience, of being satisfied in desire itself, as being associated with the condition of intoxication. That intoxication and alcoholism and addiction are symptoms of this sugya, are symptoms of this topic. And this is in Sefer Hazikaro, and it's actually the biographical writings of his son-in-law and his daughter. Um, and in the back, there's a collection of unprinted writings, and this is going to be Teaching 27. So Rafutner says as follows, there's no joy except for wine, like the Pasuk in Kohala says. And he continues and he says that according to the Maharal, there's something profoundly unique about the nature of wine, which is that it contains a paradoxical impulse within itself. On the one hand, wine satisfies, yet on the other hand, it whets the appetite. That wine at the beginning of a meal whets the appetite, and during a meal, it satisfies an individual. So wine, according to the Maharal and according to Rufutner, contains this paradoxical propensity of satisfying an individual, as well as pushing them towards more desire and dissatisfaction. And he says, and he continues, and he says, the Pasuk in Tehillim, the Pasuk in Psalm says, joyous and glad are the hearts of those who seek after God. And he says, but typically, the way the world works is that satisfaction only comes at the end of our struggle. Satisfaction comes at the culmination of our efforts where we grasp that which what we've been seeking. But he says, in the world of spirituality, in the world of a power greater than ourselves, that's not true. That it's specifically in the searching itself. It's specifically in the desire itself for something more that a person has the capacity of uncovering that same joy. That in ruchnius, in spirituality, in matters of the heart and matters of the spirit, it's not only satisfaction that brings joy, but it's yearning and desire that brings joy as well. And he says that this is the condition of wine. This is this paradoxical condition expressed in the phenomenon of intoxication, which is that it is one substance that contains within itself the possibility of satisfying as well as promoting craving. And this is the experience that he writes in the name of his Rebbe, Rav Kuk, that the tree contains within itself the possibility of satisfaction in desire as well as satisfaction in satisfaction. And to end, what we're going to look at is language from Emmanuel Levinas. 
And I, I wanted to quote a number of sources from Maurice Planchot tonight, but we're not going to have the time, and there are going to be a number of classes that demand some of his insights into the phenomenon of craving and addiction. But tonight I'm going to read from Manuel Levinas's Totality and Infinity, page 34. The metaphysical desire has another intention. It desires beyond everything that can simply complete it. It is like goodness. The desire does not fulfill it, but deepens it. Desire is absolute if the desiring being is mortal and the desired is invisible. Invisibility does not denote the absence of relationship. It implies relation with what is not given, of which there is no idea. Vision is an adequation of the idea with a thing. It is a comprehension that encompasses. Non-adequation does not denote a simple negation or an obscurity of an idea, but beyond the light and the night, beyond the knowledge measuring, the, beyond the knowledge measurable of beings, the inordinateness of desire. Desire is desire for the absolute other, for something that could not be present. Besides the hunger one satisfied, the thirst one quenches, and the sense one allies, metaphysics desires the other beyond satisfactions, where no gesture by the body to diminish the aspiration is possible, where it is not possible to sketch out any known caress nor invent any new caress. A desire without satisfaction which precisely understands the remoteness, the alterity, and the exteriority of the other. Insatiable desire, not because it corresponds to an infinite hunger, but because it is not an appeal for food. This desire is insatiable, but not because of our finitude. Like the sources say, like the Navi says, that there will come a time where there is a hunger that is not a hunger for water or for bread, but a hunger for spirituality. And because it is a hunger for the infinite, it can never truly be satisfied. And in that dissatisfaction itself, the recovering individual finds the possibility of living in a world with dissatisfaction and finding the ability to be okay with it. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. La, 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 la.